0: This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking and inspire
1: them to teach with joy. With me on the podcast today is David Daido. David is a freelance writer, blogger, speaker, trainer and author. He started his award-winning blog, The Learning Spy, in 2011 to express his constraints and irritations of ordinary teachers, detail the successes and failures within his own classroom, and synthesize his years of teaching experience through the lens of educational research and cognitive psychology. Since then, he has spoken at various national conferences, has directly influenced Ofsted, and has worked with the Department for Education to consider ways in which teachers' workload could be reduced. David is the author of some truly outstanding books, including The Secret of Literacy, What If Everything New About Education Was Wrong, and Making Kids Cleverer. David, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today.
0: Ah, thank you very much for having me.
1: The pleasure's all mine, I can assure you. So just to kick us off uh, today, David, could you provide listeners with a, a whistle-stop tour of your career to date, please?
0: Uh, yeah, so I uh, started, um, I began as an English teacher in the, in the late 90s. Um, In England, and um, and you know, I was rubbish at it. Um, If if I think if I'd started teaching in a more recently, I I don't know whether I'd survived my first couple of years. But I was left more or less alone, and nobody nobody really knew how bad I was. And um, and and you know, and I was fortunate to be able to sort of find my feet over time, and, uh, and, and 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 learn the craft in a in a fairly sort of you know natural way and um, and when I, I suppose you know it was, it's difficult in in retrospect to sort of uh, feel when it all happened, but I remember, you know I think I started teaching at a, at a time um, uh, when things were quite different to when they, to, to, where, to the where they are now, and I, for instance, I remember the very first time I was asked to um, have a look at the exam results of my students. And I thought, oh, that's a novel idea. No one's ever asked me to do that before. And, uh, and I was looking at, it going, oh, some of them had done really badly. I wonder why that, you know. And I'd, people never did that kind, or you know, in my experience, people had never done that kind of thing before. I remember moving to um, a, a new school. I moved from I was teaching in Oxford, and I moved over to the Bristol area. And the school I was work uh, I, when I would moved, I was I had a short term supply contract, and the 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 school I was working in had you know had uh, GCSE results of something like you know something below twenty percent A star to C um, kid, kids getting A star to C, and I moved to a new school in Western Supermare for September, and they were saying you know they were expecting an Ofsted inspection. They were saying that their results were twenty two percent, and I was like, oh, that's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it was a different world. So you know, Ofsted came in and they sort of said we the school i just joined was uh, you know was terrible. And and um, and it failed its inspection, and and in a lot of ways that was, uh, you know, it was the very first time then anyone sort of took an interest in what I what I did um, in the classroom because I'd had I'd had two lessons in that inspection and one of them had been judged unsatisfactory and one of the it was um, it was in the old days used to be I think it was a seven point scale so you could it was outstanding very good good not so good bit shit I can't remember you know it was all the way There was seven and I, and I got I've got one um one that was that was that, that was very good and one that was um unsatisfactory and uh you know it, it the, the lesson that was unsatisfactory it was this it was a, a year seven class and obviously I'd only been teaching them for a couple of months and they were completely feral they just you know if I could get them in their seats and not stab each other I thought it was a good lesson and um you know, so that I I planned planned my lesson. The inspector um, turns up. I can't remember what I was trying to do with them, but it, you know, needless to say, it was a disaster. And uh, she said to me, "Oh, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that was unsatisfactory. I was like, "Yeah, I know," you know. And um, and and I said, to her, what what should I have done?" And she said, "With that lot, I've no <laughs> idea," you know. And and that was, you know. So so over over the years, you know. Um, you know, I became. I be, I really tried to align myself to the directions that we were getting from Ofsted, and, and and increasingly we were being told, don't talk. You know, get let the kids work things out for themselves. Don't direct them. Um, try and you know, and, and we even had injunctions like, you know, if you talk for more than five minutes, you know, you've probably it, it can't be it can't be a good lesson and things like that. And, and even I remember once having um, a trainer come to our school and said. Uh, you know, you actually can be a bit more flexible than that. And when they're in year seven, you can talk to them for seven minutes. And when they're in year eight, you can do eight minutes. Uh, you know, you can see with that, and it's you know, and people just nodded and went, "Really, right?" You know, and this was the this was when you know we we were expected to do learning spiles, um, learning styles questionnaires with with children. You know, and I remember being you know, it was issued um, and can you fill that fill these out with your tutor group and you know you'd, you'd do them and and uh and i remember we used to have these um days where you'd meet with all of your tutees and do sort of target setting that kind of thing and i remember sitting down with this one like and one of one of the sheaf of the pieces of paper that i had to go through with him was his learning styles questionnaire and i was looking at this going so um it, it turns out you're a kinesthetic learner and uh and, you know, and, and that would mean, you know, that you, you you don't learn easily by reading and writing and that you need to sort of... And he was like, yeah, no, that's completely me. I don't want to do any reading and writing. And, and it just completely sort of validated his kind of idea of school's not for me. What's the point in even trying? Uh, I'm a kinesthetic learner, so I might as well give up now. And obviously, that was, you know, a million miles from anyone's intention, but it was it was a sort of unwitting nonsense that we just that we just went along with in the hope that it would um it would make a difference and and so yeah I'm sorry cutting a long story short i started um, I'd, I'd gone on a i'd gone on a leadership course I don't know, have you heard of Sir david carter mhm uh-huh yeah yeah so he was this was back when he was the the ceo of a, a multi-academy trust and he was doing this leadership course and uh, it, as part of it he said are any of you on twitter has anyone been on twitter and you know a couple of people sort of shamefacedly raised their hands i would never you know i had not and he said well go on twitter and uh so i did you know being keen and enthusiastic i went on twitter and uh and it was you know at the same time i started i started blogging i started writing um, about my classroom experiences cuz mainly just because i used to do things and then forget what they were and i thought if i write them down i'll, I'll remember them and um, and and as i started putting these things out there people you know it was a it was a it was a bit of a joy to me that you know people i'd never met were reading and responding and some of the comments and responses that i was getting you know, some were very very, very um you know, flattering and, and made me feel good. And some of them were quite critical, going, you know, well, that's a sort of nonsense. What are you doing that for? And, uh, and I was quite shocked, you know, because, well, I'm doing this because this is what we're meant to do. This is what everyone tells you you have to do. This is the, this is the orthodoxy. And, and it was the very first time I'd ever heard anyone critique the set of assumptions that I'd developed over the years. Uh, I, you know genuinely never heard anyone say things like actually it's it's fine for teachers to have authority uh, it's fine for you know for for children to be directed and and, and all the rest of it not you know the that teaching teaching knowledge is as important if not more important than teaching skill and 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 I, what it's all this stuff blew my mind and uh, and and you know and I started I started writing about that I started writing about I guess exactly what you're doing now with your being edu- becoming educated podcast, just just recording, you know, my head being blown, <laughs> and and all the rest of it. And this was, you know, there the, the weren't there weren't many education blogs in in those in in those days. And uh, there was uh, you probably know Kenny Piper up in um, yes I do yes yeah uh, yeah so Kenny was started blogging at about the same time as me. We were sort of you know we we'd sort of bounce off each other, but there were people like. Obviously, um, old Andrew, who who's been around for forever, who was who was, you know, this sort of mad old curmudgeon. it um, still is. Uh, but uh, and 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 Tom Bennett, um, of course, another another great Scott. and uh, uh, but not that many. I mean, in fact, you know, very few of the you know the people. You know, things change, things move on, and. Uh, you know, and I started writing about stuff that, that came up and I was asked, I was invited um, if I'd like to write to write a book, which obviously I was hugely flattered by and uh, slightly, slightly ashamed of that book now, the, the perfect English Ofsted lesson. Uh, it doesn't sell many copies these days, thank goodness, uh, but it was a product of its time. and uh, and, and then from there, you know, people... Uh, people started getting in touch with me to say uh, could I could I speak and I'd say you know could I come and do something at their school and I'd say no I've got a job and you know all this sort of mm-hmm. thing and uh, and and um, I I negotiated a new job where I'd be working four days a week with a day to try and sort of meet some of these external offers and uh, and things just things just evolved and, and moved from there and you know, people often say to me now. I visit a school and they say, "Do you do you miss teaching?" And you know, it's a really, it's a really, it's a really good question because I miss teaching, but I don't miss being a teacher. I love being in a classroom with kids, you know, and I still get to do that. So, you know, in a lot of the schools I visit, I go in. And, well, I haven't obviously for the past few months, but I, you know, go in and and uh, and and model lessons and do a lot of that sort of stuff. But the 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 activity of being a teacher isn't is very little to do with teaching. It's much more to do with you know admin and you know nodding and smiling at the right people and, and all the rest of it. And I don't miss any of that um, uh, to be to be honest. Um, and I'm probably unemployable now. Um,
1: <laughs> Surely not. Surely but
0: not. Um, yeah, that's a whistle stop tour. I'm sorry that's probably longer than you wanted.
1: No, that's that's part, perfectly fine. I'm I'm just so fascinated by by what you've said there. The the, the journey from yeah, the beginning of your career to writing the the perfect Oxford English lesson to what you what you've what you where you are now and what you've written now, and we're going to talk talk a little bit more in depth about about your like the kind of the latest one that you published last year, making kids clever, because it's certainly a lot of it resonated with me and a lot of it challenged my thinking, and I just want to dig a little bit deeper into into some of them. But before we, we kind of go into the, some of the ideas in the book, could you could you could you share what brought you to to write it?
0: Um well i I'd, I'd spent you know um a year or so uh researching intelligence and a lot of what i found out was was a real surprise to me uh you know as you as you probably know every you know everybody knows um that uh you know that that Uh, All an IQ test can tell you is whether or how good you are at taking Mm -hmm. IQ tests. It's not related to anything in the real world. And, you know, that people who are intelligent are are probably mad, you know, and all of these sorts of uh, myths, bits of folk wisdom that 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 are just trotted out as truisms um, turn out to be completely unsupported by or flatly contradicted by the evidence that there is. And I became more and more interested in it and became more, you know, sort of more and more. I, I became fascinated with the things that the intelligence does seem to be connected with and and started to think that actually when you when you're looking at the, the reason that we send children to school, and the reason we educate them, you know, and that which has been a sort of contested battleground for probably, for you know, a good long time. Um, it struck me that actually trying to find ways to make children cleverer to make them more intelligent was is as good a name if not better than than most and and i suppose that was the you know partly wanting to explain what i'd learned and found out and partly you know just putting it out there to see what people made of it Mm -hmm. see if the the argument that i'd constructed held water
1: no certainly i i i i'm just gonna read it just now, I really enjoyed the, your last your last sentence in the book. And I suppose it will shape what we're, what we're going to talk about through the rest of the podcast. And it was that um, instead of our energies are directed towards trying to improve everyone's average, all children will improve. And you finish it with, we cannot all be geniuses, but we can all get cleverer. And it brings us on to, the, to the my next question that you tackle in the book. And, and, it's, and you said it's a very contested one. And that is... Um, you start the book by discussing what the purpose of education is and it was a really fascinating chapter for me because it it kind of held true to some of the things that i believe in my head but i perhaps don't outwardly say if if you know what i mean so what is the purpose of education or or what should be the purpose of education then
0: well so you know what i what i've what i argued is it should be to increase children's intellectual capability um, that that if it's not doing that then the what we're what we're putting forward as our as as our as our you know whatever we value probably isn't being achieved so you know I'd, I'd sort of look at you know various different purposes and the the arguments behind them and uh, you know like like developing character or to, to prepare people for work or to make them better citizens and all of these sorts of things. And sort of look at you know look at the pros and cons and 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 say you know all of these things have some value, but only if they're aligned to, you know, to, to actually sort of making children cleverer, to 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 improving their ability to grapple with the world by um, by working on their intelligence.
1: So, so can I go into a little bit of intelligence and, and what you mm-hmm. find out about IQ tests? before that, you spoke a little bit about why. I want to ask you why sometimes we find some things easier to learn and other things harder to learn. And what impact has, has evolution played in this?
0: Well, um, um, so we don't know. Um, we've just got theories and we've got guesses. And so, you know, that. the Evolutionary psychology sort of gets a bit of a bad rap um, because people say you know you can't actually you know it's all just so stories and and, and it's you know post hoc rationalisations for things and and all the rest of it. But it does actually you know if you sort of take as as given that in a hostile environment you know our primitive past uh, we you know the the goal of all animals and, and human beings in, in included is to is to survive and reproduce. And that's what we're driven by, and obviously we're not we're not condemned to do only that. But those are the if we didn't do if we didn't survive and we didn't reproduce, then we wouldn't be here. So so it's pretty important that we that we try to get that done, and um, and and through various sort of um, compu- bits of computer modelling, um, evolutionary biologists have, have sort of made some claims about about the likelihood of how. Long people would spend in learning and and working out new ideas, and how much they're likely to spend copying, and it and it turns out that we're we're disproportionately you know, we spend our time copying rather than innovating um, because innovating is hugely risky. So if you if you picture yourself in a in a in an environment where you don't you know you don't have you're a hunter gatherer and you're trying to survive. Um, one slip one wrong move and you could be you could be dead so people who innovated uh, and would more often than not make fatal mistakes they wouldn't get to pass on their genetic material and we're descended by and large uh, from the people that were really good at copying. Now, you do need a bit of innovation, but only a small bit, so that, you know, that when the environment changes, so you've been, there's a predator, here's what we do to deal with a predator. Oh, oh, it's a different predator. This one can climb trees. Okay, so how do we deal with, you know, so you need, you need to, you need to do, have a little bit of innovation, but in the um, in the main, as an individual, we're much, much better off just copying what's successful. So that's been a sort of, the template for for human culture um, that that's what we do and and there's good reason to think over the you know over the years that we we've evolved the capacity for acquiring some things really really quickly because they're they're so fundamentally useful for our survival and and we can also sort of look at the fact that certain features of human beings seem to be universal constants that they apply to cultures Everywhere on, on across the globe and as far as we know to all points in history that we've been able to look at and that's things like language so every human culture uh, that we know of has language and Therefore or connected with that uh, all human beings seem to have a capacity for learning language really rapidly far more rapidly than you'd think would be likely given the complexity and the unpredictability and the sort of infinite scope of language um and so you know most people become more or less fluent with their native tongue by the time they're about three and um and and you know that's that's almost that's too quick for the the amount of content that has to be learned so various people have argued that that, you know that maybe we have some sort of innate ability and um but whether or not, you know, whatever that might be, it would it would imply that language being a universal human constant is one of those things that we find easy to learn. Things that we don't find easy to learn are things that are not human universal constants, things which are cultural innovations, things which have happened too recently for evolution to have a handle on. So whilst we learn to speak really, really quickly, we don't have in any way the same sort of capacity for reading or writing, which are pretty recent inventions you know in a in an evolutionary scope so we've only had writing for a few thousand years and most people weren't expected to learn it until you know the last hundred or so years so the idea that we'd find it as easy to learn to read as to as to speak um, is naive it's uh, but it's but it's sort of trickled in to some of our assumptions about education that go back to you know quite sort of Um, romantic ideas about sort of nature and so you know various people have observed children picking things up in their natural environments and you know fiddling with objects and learning how they work and this sort of thing and going wow education should be more like that if we made it more natural and children just follow their natural proclivities, they'd get where they need to be but um that kind of natural learning only seems to be effective for those things that evolution has been has been around long enough for evolution to have a hand in, and anything that we've invented more recently, um, doesn't seem to be responsive to that sort of thing. So if you put, I don't know, a kid in a field with a load of maths books, they're not they're not going to pick up algebra, uh, or you know, not very many of them. It's going to be sort of vanishingly remote the number that actually learn to, to solve algebraic equations so that most human beings need somebody to explain the concept, lead them through it, show them how to do it, and all the rest of it. Um, so that's, I don't know, does that answer the question?
1: It certainly does, that idea that we've, say in, in summary then, that we've evolved to, to pick up to speak to each other and communicate well, but perhaps reading and writing, we need somebody to teach that, and that kind of where the role of schooling and, and teaching comes in. And we'll, Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Wait, so, we're going to kind of explore a few more of those things sure. as, as we work through. So, you kind of said that you researched intelligence for a while, and obviously that research is is, is quite a large part of the book. So, so what is intelligence, and, and is it fixed at birth, or do we have some control over developing our intelligence? Uh,
0: so, you know, what the a definition of intelligence is, is really controversial, and um, you know, that you, you ask as many different intelligence researchers for a definition, and you'll get you know a huge variety of answers I'm just gonna I'm gonna just read you a definition which is about as close as I think we can get to a consensus position and it's you know maybe not that close is this one from uh, a paper by Linda Gottfredson and her the definition which she and a number of other uh, intelligence researchers agreed to was that it is a very general mental capability that amongst other things involves the ability to reason, plan, solve problems, think abstractly, comprehend complex ideas, learn quickly, and learn from experience. And then this is the bit I think for me is quite crucial. It's not merely book learning, a narrow academic skill, or test-taking smarts. Rather, it reflects a broader and deeper capability for comprehending our surroundings, catching on, making sense of things, or figuring out what to do, and I, um, as I say, you know, lots of lots of people use that definition within the within the field, even though there are some people that disagree with it quite strongly. But the fact that I've, that distinction's made, it isn't just about doing well in an academic context; it's just being able to to thrive in whatever environment you find yourself in. So I think that's that's about as good um, as a definition that I've been able to find. Um, what was the other part? You the
1: the follow up, follow up then to that is—is—is is, is, is our intelligence fixed at birth, or do we have some control over developing our intelligence?
0: Right. Um, so it's definitely not fixed at birth, uh, because it might be the case. Oh, you know, there's there's definitely a case that um, our, our our genes, our genetic material. Uh, has input into the into, into you know, how intelligent we're likely to become, um, but our environment is is vital. So to take an extreme example, you know if you lock somebody up in a box as soon as they're born, and you know for, if you lock them up for twenty years and let them out, they're not going to be very intelligent. They they just won't know anything and so if you I got into trouble once for saying this but babies are universally stupid when they're born they can't do anything they can't speak they can't they they, they learn incredibly quickly and and you know they they are on, on this incredible um, learning curve but but at that at the moment that they're born we're all completely unintelligent we acquire intelligence through interacting with our environment so. So you know the the whole sort of nature nurture debate is a sort of fascinating one and one that I go into in quite some depth and it's definitely the case that we that we all have um, you know that we're not all the same mm-hmm. we don't we don't you know if you gave everybody an identical environment we wouldn't all be equally intelligent and so our you know the, our genetic makeup has something to do with that. But but absolutely so does our environment and and so you know that it's quite sort of contested and controversial this this sort of stuff. But one of the just to give you an example, so in one one of the programs that uh, has that has been tried in the past, uh, Sure starts. Have you come across Sure starts?
1: No, I haven't. No.
0: Right? So basically, the idea is that you take. Children, uh, family from families where you you, know, you might think they're at risk, at not doing particularly well at school, and you from very very young age you get them into these short sure start centres where you give them you know really cognitively enhancing sort of activities to do and and worked and and all the rest of it. And what what researchers found is that whilst children were taking part in these programs, they saw a real boost to their IQ, and then. That would wear off, and then they would revert. And so the the headline was, this sure Start doesn't work. These things. This is a failure because um, because it's not magic. Um, and it you know. And I say not magic because you know if you if you use a different example, if you said right, okay, so we've got a load of people, and we're really worried about their health. So what we're going to do is we're going to get them into a health centre. We're going to get them exercising. We're going to get them eating really healthily." Uh, Oh, look, their health's improving. Brilliant. That's really good. Right. OK, off you go, you lot. And then they go back to the sofa and eat chips for the next couple of years. And you go, bloody hell, what happened to their health? You know, why isn't it great? stuff? Because the environment matters. So in the same way, it's obvious that the environment matters for your health. We all have, you know, some of us find it easier to keep weight down or to be fit than others. And that's that's certainly true. But the environment's crucial for everybody's Mm. health. And the same is true for our intelligence. If you're in a cognitively um, um, enhancing environment, then you'll become cleverer. If you're not, if you're somewhere where you're not getting um, stimulation, then you th- th- those gains are probably going to wear off.
1: And that makes sense. It certainly it certainly does. And, and you mentioned there about the, the nature versus nurture thing, and, and you tackled that in your book. So to kind of go further on that, how much is, is you said, kind of said there about our how much then is our intelligence dictated by our genes? But and also, how much does upbringing through our parents impact impact our knowledge? And you also refer to, to the influence of peer groups in the book. Can you speak uh, to more of that?
0: Yeah, I can. Um, so so, contra to what I've just said, and this sort of confuses uh, a lot of people, is that you know one of the one of the things which has been sort of widely reported um, is that the parents the effects of parenting don't seem to persist into adulthood which is a bit of a shock for parents um, and something that most people have found are not predisposed to hearing um, and people and often people get quite upset by that what do you mean that's obviously nonsense but it would seem to there's good evidence for the claim that the reason that we're like our parents is because we share their dna and and the so the, the extent to which we like them is because we're genetically similar. And where, where you have – I'll just give you an example. So, you know, as a, as a parent, one of the things you do is you say to your kids perhaps, eat your greens, eat your spinach, eat your cabbage and your sprouts, get that down here because that's really healthy. And when kids are little, um, they've kind of more or less got to go along with what you're saying. Uh, and they might fight and struggle and all the rest of it. But as a parent, you have quite a bit of influence on whether or not they eat vegetables. By the time they're 16, 17, 18, they're just not prepared to do what they're told in those sorts of ways anymore. And if you say, eat your, eat your vegetables, um, it, you know, they're going to they're, they're have far more autonomy. Eventually, they're going to leave home and you're not there to tell them to eat their vegetables. If they end up eating their vegetables, you know, the, what we kind of believe often as parents is, thank goodness they're eating their vegetables. That's because I did such a good job of bringing them up. And what seems to be more likely is if they do end up eating healthily it's because of who they are, not what you've told them. Uh, and so one of the ways, you know, one of the ways that we can sort of track this is by looking at the difference in parental effects on examinations taken at 16 and those taken on 18. So at 16, like a GCSE exam at 16, you can, you can identify a fair bit of parental influence which washes out almost completely with A-levels. Um, that you know, by the time they've taken their A-levels, they're, they're no longer likely to be influenced by parents if they if they' if they're doing well it's because of their own decisions and own efforts and and those decisions and efforts are a result of who they are not the not what you've told them to do and so but it's not it's you know it's not a some of the things that we do as parents um, do have long-term benefits you know I, and, I, and I, I talk about earlier though about the shore start centers if you're as a parent providing a cognitively rich environment for your children that environment is going to help make them it, you know it's going to produce the wherewithal to help make them cleverer if you don't if you you know if you do the sort of the equivalent of locking them in a box with no stimulus then then that's that's going to have an effect as well and um What's really interesting, though, and you mentioned there about peer effects, is that that children seem to be, we, we seem to spend we seem to be more influenced by um, by by our peers and our parents as we get older. So, you know, after the age of once we start school, sort of five six, that sort of time, we start being we start being much more interested in copying. The, the, those of our own age, and, and if you think of children, the goal of a child is not to be a successful adult. Children are not interested in that. The goal of a child is to be a successful child.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, as a you know, parents, you know the, what what do they know about being successful children? Well, they might know quite a lot, but from the child's perspective, they're not doing, they're not in that world, and so they take their cues from those that are successful in in their in their uh, surroundings and seek to emulate them. And you know, there's there's some really interesting examples of how this works. So you take, um, for instance, you take children who are recent immigrants to a country, and their parents uh, might have quite, if they've been an immigrant to an English-speaking country, their parents might have quite broken English, or they might not speak English. Um, But children don't sound like their parents. Children sound like their peer groups. Um, that this was something that really upset my mum. My mum's got quite a cut glass accent, and uh, sounds a bit posh. And I don't know if you picked it. I say I'm I'm from Birmingham, and I, I sound, uh, you know, I sound I sound like it. And uh, and that used to really upset her. And she'd say, you know, David, you do sound common. And, <laughs> and, and, and because but you know, children take their cues from their peers, not from their mm-hmm. from their parents, increasingly as they get older. And um, you know, by the time they get to school, one of the you know, the, the the factors that's most likely to determine children's intelligence is the peer culture that exists around them. And if there's a culture, if they if they hook into a culture where it's it's cool to work hard and it's and it's you know it's admirable to read and all and make effort and all the rest of it, then that will that you know, uh, that will that will affect everybody positively. But if there's a, a culture where, you know, you slack off and you make jokes and you, you know, you muck about and you skive and all of that sort of stuff, then that's going to have a depressing effect on everybody. So you'll still have, you know, you'll still have variation within that because it's not all the environment. Some of it's our, some of it's our genes. So some people will do better than others and and so on. But these cultures have an effect on everybody to a greater or lesser extent.
1: It's interesting about that, about the peer group influence and especially when you said there about the difference in GCSE. To, to A level of obviously schools have a, have got a big role to play in trying and making the norms the the, yeah. so, the the social norms then to of you said there about if it's admirable to read and, and, and to learn or whether it's more cool to be to be laughing and joking and, and not caring. So I suppose schools have a role to play in, in kind of harnessing
0: that peer groups. Yeah very much. Yeah. And it's it's um you know I think that's one of the most important things that the school should be prioritising, you know, the, the peer culture in their school, and and it's one of the, you know, so in 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 England we have a big debate about every now and again people sort of argue about grammar schools, you know, selective schools, and um, you yeah, know, they're an interesting sort of test case because you look at sort of a grammar school and typically they'll have a quite an academic culture, uh, quite aspirational, and and so for most of the children that go there that works really well, but one of the things that sort of seems to happen is that if you as an individual identify not with the in, with the with the majority but with a the minority then you're much you're more likely to feel excluded from that culture so if you're from a disadvantaged background and you go to a school where everyone else is from a, an advantage background you'll seek you're more likely to seek out people like you And take your cues from them and if if the prevailing culture amongst that subgroup is one you know that sets itself in opposition to the main culture then that's the one that's going to be difficult for you I mean lots of lots of schools feel that that that, you know that there are effects for different groups within their within their school and they say you know the kids from like this estate or from this background they seem to you know have this set of beliefs and I think that that you know, we, we, we obsess about their family background, their their, their their parental homes and, you know, the role of parents in schools. And I'm not at all saying that those things are unimportant or we shouldn't worry about them. But I think that we'd be, we'd get far more traction by being, like, by looking at what effects we can have on those peer cultures. And the answer isn't none. You know, we can we can't solve every problem mm-hmm. and we can't we can't you know we can't work miracles necessarily i mean some people seem to more than others but we can definitely have an effect. and one of the one of the sort of causes for optimism is that in order to affect peer culture you don't have to be a member of the peer group so so as a teacher you can be a leader of peer culture even though you're not part of the peer group Mm -hmm. so in your classroom you know and you can you see this with like successful teachers and especially if you see really if you ever go to a school where there's some really successful teachers but the whole school's struggling for one reason or another and they're like they're like warlords in a failed state you know they they hold the line in their space of the school and it's because what they do in in microcosm is they say this is what we do in my classroom this is this is how we do things around here this is, you know, it's not acceptable to behave like that. This is what I'm insisting on, and you know, and their personal charisma and 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 insistence has a huge influence on the children that come into their sphere of um, of, of of influence, and. um and and you know school if if the whole school is magnifying that, if that's a unified approach that a whole school takes where you know we're all giving that message and there is there is nowhere that you can run off to and sort of you know nobody cares over it in this corner then that that has a that has a very powerful effect on the children in that school
1: mm-hmm. it certainly does, and I think that that idea of, of developing a peer culture is definitely something as you said right, right at the start of that is that it's something that we should be prioritizing so th- thank you for for summing that up and um, kind of moving on to, to more mm. of of how schools can, can influence making kids clever you're right that iq tests so we're going to talk a little bit about iq tests although they imperfectly measure it they provide a reliable and valid proxy for what we mean by intelligence so i want to ask you david are iq tests good predictors of our intelligence and what else do they correlate to because you write a lot about what yeah. I, I, iq scores actually correlate to in, in wider life
0: Yeah, no, this is fascinating to me, at least. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that there's this belief that, you know, IQ tests tell you nothing about the real world. Um, And and in fact, um, they seem to positively correlate with almost every trait that we value. So just to say... IQ, intelligence quotient, it's not a single test, it's a battery of of, um, six or seven different tests, depending on the IQ test that you do. So there's various subtests. And one of the really interesting things that um, we've found is that if you do well on one aspect of an IQ test, you're likely to do well at all aspects. And, and, And that's to say that intelligence appears to be general. So our, our naive belief is that you know some people are good at some people are good with words some people are good with numbers some people are good at that there's some people are good at that. but what statistically if you're good at one thing you're good at everything and uh, if you're not good at anything you know if you're not if you're not good at one thing you probably won't be good at most things and and that can seem a bit sort of cruel and unfair but it does seem to be the cl- the case um so and then you, so you, what we can do is we can we can look at um, the, the scores and we've got a huge database of, of scores and we can then compare those scores with other things that we that we genuinely do think are really, really important. So we can think, you know, what sort of traits are important in a human being? Maybe creativity. Now, our, our ways of me- measuring creativity are a lot less accurate than our than our imperfect ways of measuring intelligence. And yet. There seems to be a correlation between how in, how well someone does on an IQ test and how well they do on a creativity test. Now, the way the way the extent to which scores correlate is, um, you know, as everyone knows, correlation is not causation. Mm-hmm. So, so that's an important thing to get out of the way. It could be, you know, the creativity, you know, the, how being more creative causes you to be more intelligent rather than intelligence causing creativity. So it could be that way. It might be that there's a third thing. That we don't know about which is causing both intelligence and creativity and we, we just don't know what it is that that might be it but to say something correlates means that the link between two factors is more than you would expect through chance uh, a perfect correlation would be one and, a, and, a, and a, 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 a no correlation at all would be zero and a perfect negative correlation would be minus one so about the the strongest correlations that we get in the social sciences are about 0.8. That's massive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very rare to get any, any correlations as strong as that. And uh, you know, correlations between sort of 0.3 and 0.5 are normally considered to be medium strength correlations. They're, 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 although that sounds quite low, it's far more than you might expect to happen mm-hmm. just by randomness. And, When you look at all the various things that intelligence correlates with, it it seems to point to so many different things that it seems reasonable to claim that it might be the causal factor. It might not, but um, I'm sort of heavily caveating this. Mm -hmm. So it seems to correlate with things like uh, um, creativity and leadership and also quite surprising things like conscientiousness. So, you know, how likely you are to turn up every day on time Is predicted by how well you score on an IQ test, and it's more predictive in some environments. So, so conscientiousness in a high complexity environment, the correlation is about Mm 0.6. So, so you know, pretty 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 solid. So I would I would say, for instance, that working in a school is a high complexity environment. There's there's a whole range of decision making you have to do, which is hard to sort of say in advance exactly what it will be. So cor- the conscientiousness prediction in a low complexity environment is is less well correlated but it's still there. Uh, it also correlates with things like um, with, with, with how likely you are either to, to commit a violent crime or to be the victim of violent crime. So there's a negative correlation between intelligence and violence. So the more intelligent you are, the higher your IQ score, the less likely you are either to be a victim of violence or to commit a violent crime. You, know, you might commit lots of other types of crime, but it probably, probably not a violent one. And so, you know, it's quite interesting to speculate that. Is that because if the more intelligent you are, the more likely you are to talk your way out of and into situations? You know, hard to know. But it, it also um, it correlates with, um, with things like mental health, and that's a really interesting one. So, again, a negative correlation with mental illness, the higher your IQ score, the more likely you are to be mentally healthy and not suffer with mental illness. And that flatly contradicts the kind of common mythology that, you know, the tortured genius, the sort of the, the, the mad boffin and all that sort of thing, that the, that the actual evidence that we have is 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 against that um we've also got an an interesting one you know that people sort of typically say yeah you know it's all right being it's all right being clever but I'd rather be happy I'd rather my kids were happy um but actually intelligence and happiness seems to correlate quite strongly and you know I should say the ways we have of measuring happiness are very um inaccurate it's mainly self-report so you ask people how happy do you think you are and they go oh, you know quite happy but but the, the higher your iq score the more likely you are to say you're quite happy and the lower your iq score the more likely you are to say you're unhappy and that that's really surprising um and you know one, one of the big um, strong correlations is between um, intelligence and longevity so you will you're likely to live longer the higher your iq score you're much likely to suffer, be the victim of a, of a fatal accident, and and all of these other factors. And so, the the strongest correlation that we have, and this is probably unsurprising, is the correlation between intelligence and educational outcomes, and that's about 0.8. It's about as it's about as strong as you could hope to find. And, and one of the things that I find really interesting about that particular correlation is, is to sort of investigate exactly which way the causal arrow is pointing. So is it that intelligence causes higher educational outcomes? And, and certainly, you know, there's good evidence that, that that would be the case. But is there any kind of argument for saying that education causes higher intelligence? and And I think that's one of the most interesting things to sort of speculate about, because there does seem to be some quite good evidence that intelligence does cause higher intelligence and you know to to know this for sure, what we'd have to do is we'd have to sort of run a randomized control pr- trial where we randomly assign some children to a non education you know intervention where they they weren't sent to school and and uh, we and we track them and obviously that would be quite unethical so haven't done that um but what we can do and this is kind of a a really interesting experimental design is you can you can take advantage of the fact that within a cohort within a group of children in a year there will be there'll be up up to a year's chronological difference in their ages so you're if you start school you know you're you're you, you can be um you can have some children who are you know a their birthday's on the next day and some children have to wait a whole year so by looking at the the effects of a year in school and 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 looking and, and comparing that with an additional year of age we can see that spending an additional year in school seems to add about 3 IQ points a year wow yeah i know and and there's other um there's other evidence from the other from the other side of education so in um, Norway the we've we're lucky that we've been able to sort of look at the effects of a natural experiment that they uh, the, the Norwegian men in particular young men were for a lot for a long long time were drafted and um, when they left school and they had to do military service and part of being drafted for military service was you took a compulsory IQ test And um, they decided, I can't remember the date, but they decided they were going to raise the school leaving age. Um, But fortunately for us, they they raised it um, in different parts of the country at different times. So over a period of years, you were able to see, track the difference again with having an additional year in school with IQ scores. And again, that seems to confirm about three IQ points per year. seems to hold water. So from both those, both of those different sorts of studies, so there's a good claim that education is making people cleverer.
1: I like that, how that Norway have done that, and we can use that. So if if, if we know that that school can add three IQ points per year of school, and we're in school for I can't remember, I can't even remember how many years we're in school. 12, 13 years we're in we're in school in total. That's that's quite that's quite a big difference that school can make. So kind of the whole the whole idea you book book then is, is talking about why we need to make kids clever. So how how much we're kind of talking about how much a school can make kids clever, but how do they then do that? And can I follow that up follow that up with, with how important then is it that we build knowledge throughout throughout our school Yeah.
0: Okay. So um one of the things I think that's you know that that well one of the, the areas of um, research that most teachers have, will be familiar with is um, growth mindset. And you know the the sort of the, the growth mindset message is that you know, if you try hard, if you work hard, you become cleverer. And uh, and there's nothing wrong with that as a message. It's that's that's good stuff. But the way in which that's enacted in schools, I think, is less often less useful. And 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 I think the way that that particularly you know when children sort of you know confronted with the fact that you know if you've got a fixed mindset that you're you know you're likely to 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 do less well for all sorts of reasons. And and I think that we've kind of associated the fixed mindset with being evil, being bad. Uh, bad. So, you know, you ask people, have you got a growth mindset? And they're like offended. Yeah, of course I have, because I'm not evil. And, and it's, you know, it's, and it becomes, a lot of it becomes like, you know, the interventions are, are like nagging, you know, or oh, you just haven't done it yet. Come on, try again. Now, if you're a kid that's trying continually failing, then, then, you know, being, being told that you need to have a, fi- a growth mindset isn't probably very helpful because your lived experience is that no matter how hard I try, I, I, I don't get any better. Um, and we'll come back to that uh, if you if if mm-hmm. if you find later on. So I think a more useful conception is to think about what what parts of intelligence can are malleable and what parts are not. What parts are fixed, and so intelligence researchers distinguish between what they call crystallized and fluid intelligence. So fluid intelligence is your raw reasoning ability, your ability to solve problems that you've got no prior knowledge to help you with. And the word fluid might make you think that it changes a lot, but unfortunately that's the bit that's more fixed. So it changes with age. As we mature we become, you know, our fluid intelligence increases. It seems to wreak its peak in most people in in the mid-20s and then it starts to tail off and so by the time you're in your 60s and 70s you're hemorrhaging fluid intelligence um, because you're not as quick Mm -hmm. Uh, but crystallized intelligence is your ability to use your prior knowledge to solve the problems that you're confronted with and prior knowledge just continues increasing throughout your life it just goes Keeps on getting um, greater and greater, and so you know there is. It is true that the older you are, the wiser you are. You just it takes you a little bit longer sometimes. Um, so, crystallized intelligence is essentially what you know. So, if I know a load of stuff and I can use that to solve a problem, then you know that that's that will that will always trump someone that doesn't have that particular knowledge but has a maybe a a higher fluid intelligence so fluid intelligence is correlated with it's not quite the same thing but it's it's strongly correlated with working memory so if you've got a higher working memory capacity you can you can handle more information at once and you know you're likely to learn more of the result but if you no matter how great your fluid intelligence is if you come across someone with 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 who's got a um, a particular expertise who knows a lot in a particular domain, they will almost always outperform you because of the effects of prior knowledge. So we, we haven't really found a way to improve fluid intelligence. There's various researchers who who, who are looking at this, and one of the, the lines of research that um, seems to be most popular is to look at what are often called NBAC training, training, where you... Essentially you manipulate numbers backwards and forwards and and um, and uh, and there are claims made that if you spend enough time doing this then that will improve your fluid intelligence but these seem to be you know there's a real mixed bag of stuff out there and most the consensus appears to be it might work somewhere sometime but not yet and and even even if it did work for schools to be able to say that they were in cho- improving children's fluid intelligence they'd have to replace their curriculum with getting children to spend all day reading numbers backwards and probably there are good reasons why we don't want to do that mm-hmm. so so it's probably not a good bet yeah, it's a much better bet to to focus on crystallised intelligence because increasing that is really well understood we've known how to do that for thousands of years so the essentially the more you know uh, the the more information that you have to be to to think with the more so the more you know the better the quality of thought you can have and and one of the ways that i think you know for people listening that you can try and illustrate this uh, and I'm, we're going to assume obviously that all your listeners are very intelligent smart people so what i if you are listening to this what i want you to do is to think of something that you've never heard of You, you don't know anything at all about it. You've never, ever experienced it. Can you? Th- and you, the, obviously the, the joke is it's impossible to think of something you've never heard of. You can only think of things you heard of. And you can think of things that you don't know much about. You can say, for instance, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure what quantum physics is. But you've got to have heard of quantum physics to be able to have that thought. But if if you think about something that you know a lot about, then you know, what happens in your mind is much more interesting. You start almost automatically making links and connections between different ideas and you start thinking, you know, oh, what, if I, what if I did this instead of that? And, you know, that's creative. Or you look at something and you go, oh, I'm not so sure that this bit is right and that's critical thinking. You know, all of these things are dependent on the quantity and the quality of what you've got stored in your long-term memory.
1: Right, so can you can you go a little bit deeper in that how does how does our memory work and how, how can we how can teachers harness the information on how our memory works to, okay. to make kids
0: clever so uh, I should say basically uh, nobody really knows how our memories work uh, we've just got some models mm-hmm. um, and okay. the thing to remember about models is that they are wrong they are massive simplifications. Uh, but some models are useful, even though they're not accurate and so the working memory model uh, has been around quite a long time now, and there's an awful lot of cognitive psychology which is built upon that model and it would take an awful lot of of it would it, it would be really surprising for that to be overturned there's such a wealth of evidence that supports it as a model and it makes some useful predictions um which we you know we can see play out in the classroom and so what the working memory model says is that that essentially we have an area of our minds which we we will call working memory, and your working memory is your consciousness, and and it's every thought you ever have takes place in your working memory, and um, you use your working memory to pay attention to the environment. So at the moment, for people listening, part of their environment is going to be our voices, so they'll be they'll be attending to our voices. And um, obviously, uh, the ability to pay attention isn't perfect. Apparently, as adults, we we only pay attention to about one percent of the environmental information that's available to us, and because we're really, really good at focusing, so ignoring one, you know, lo- lots of things in order to focus on what we decided is most important. And um, so, so what's what what will be happening is that. I'll be saying things and making various comments and and what people will experience if they're listening to this is that probably, hopefully, as they've been listening, that they've thought to themselves, oh, this is a little bit like something else I've heard. Uh, Oh, yeah, I heard somebody else say something similar to this, or I've seen a child do that in my classroom, and, and they'll be making links with their prior knowledge, and so what we've got stored in our long-term memory is retrieved in working memory. And it's the combination of the attention to new information, which is then churned with what we already know in order to sort of make new meaning. And, that, and then those new meanings are then stored into the area of our brain that the model calls long-term memory. And so, what we've got in long-term memory makes it easier for us to make sense of the things that we're attending to. Now, if I don't know, if if you if you were stumbled into this podcast expecting it to be something completely different, and I don't know, maybe you were hoping it would be about tiddlywinks, and you get on there and you find that people talking about intelligence and memory and all the rest of it, and and you've got no relevant prior knowledge, then you're going to be you're going to be bored senseless in minutes because you'll be, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. And it's, so it's our prior knowledge, which kind of, which, which, which drives our interest and our engagement with things. The more we know about things, the more like, the more we'll get out of hearing more about them. Does that make
1: sense? It certainly does. Yes. So obviously, but if, if you're listening to this as a, as an example and if you, you already have 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 spoken to other people or listened before about about the idea of intelligence of working memory, long term memory. Then it's easier to access what we're saying because you're retrieving that from your long term memory and taking it to your working memory because you're attending to the to what we're saying. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much correct. So, um, so the difference between somebody who's good at something and somebody isn't who isn't good at, that, at something is how much they know about it. So you know that one of the things that we sometimes do in uh, classrooms, and I've certainly been guilty of this: is um, give the kids an activity to do that they don't, they, that some of them don't know anything about. You know, and you you say to them, "Come on, work it out for yourselves. We've got have a go with it." And uh, and if you've if you've ever done that, if you've ever tried to, you know, been in a situation where you've someone's asked you to do something you know nothing about, it's very difficult to do that. It's very difficult to. To persevere with something where you've just got so little to go on, and even where you know a bit, um, the limits of our expertise very quickly become a barrier. Um, I'm a, I'm, I'm quite a keen amateur cook. I make no great claims for myself, but I do like cooking, and and I think a good example. Um, I think cooking presents a good example. So, when if I want to cook a new recipe, I'll follow a, I'll follow. A recipe in a book or you know from the internet or something and if i'm following a recipe then the the steps of the recipe are being uh, occupying my working memory and i'm thinking about you know step one do this step two do that and it's much harder to think about the 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 meal i'm trying to make in the whole, in the round as a big picture instead i'm it's being atomized into these steps and i remember um oh it was a while back now uh, one Christmas, I decided I was going to have a go at making a Grand Marnier souffle. Uh, I'd never made a souffle. I don't know if you've ever. Have you made a souffle? I
1: haven't made a souffle. No, well, I'm,
0: I'm, I'm, no, I'm no great cook. <laughs> well, no, neither am I, as it turns out. So I, I decided I was going to give a go. Now, you probably know souffles are tricky things. Mm. So I knew that it would be perhaps uh, tricky to do. But anyway, I got the, a recipe I wanted to to follow. and uh, And one <laughs> of the it was a recipe from the internet and one of the steps in the recipe said that the you know i'd put all my mixture into a bowl and it said beat the mixture together until the consistency is just right and i was like well i <laughs> how do it? you know what just right you know what just right like so you know i did my best and um, and then you know i I got to the ends of uh, the process, and it said, you know, where it says stick it in the oven, and it, you know, it was a reminder. To make sure that the temperature. Oh, damn, I forgot to put. Anyway, there was all sorts of things like. Anyway, I put the soufflé in, and it didn't rise. It was a mess. It was a sad and grim uh, disaster. And um, what do you reckon I learned?
1: That when you spoon it, you didn't get it just
0: right. Well, yeah, but the more important lesson is that I should avoid ever making souffles. <laughs> if I want to eat souffle, I'd be much better off buying it from Marks and Spencer's. You know, that, that it was too much trouble. And 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 I think that this is what happens to to children all of the time. That we ask them to do things and um and they they struggle with it. They 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 mess it up. And what they learn is, I'm rubbish at this. I can't, I can't do maths. I'm, I'm crap at French or whatever it is. And and that, that you know, I'm rubbish at maths. That's what gets stored in their long-term memory. So the next time somebody comes along and says, "Let's have a go at some maths," they go, "Ah, oh, I've got some relevant information about this. I'm, I already know I'm rubbish. <laughs> you can forget that. You know, and and they, you know that they they build this." this experience of being rubbish becomes greater and greater and greater with time now you know i was sort of thinking about my my souffle example and just you know a, a lot of the things that we as teachers know children need to be to do are things that we find it very hard to explain you know that we just know them but putting them into words making them explicit is really really difficult and and if i'd had a chef next to me who was able to sort of Tap me on the shoulder and go. That's just right. That's what it feels like. It's that embodied experience mm-hmm. that you need. It's that tacit knowledge that you can't really put into words. And I think you know that that's something that's true in the classroom all of the time. That if you catch kids doing things and go, yeah, that's what I want you to do, and they go, oh, why didn't you say so? You know, well, uh, I did. I did try. You know, but you, sometimes you can't explain things. And 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 I think that that if we if we uh, are mindful of the limitations of human working memory and the fact that having lots and lots of new things to try and make sense of at once is difficult for anyone, We're all, we'd all struggle with this, depending on our fields of knowledge and expertise. And that if, we, if, if the, the starting point in the classroom is to build up a schema of success, to, make, to give children an experience of what it feels like to do something successfully, I mean, I think you, you're, you're you, you as a as a PE teacher. I think PE teachers are often very very good at this because so much of what you do is embodied. Mm-hmm. So. You- you're trying to teach a particular movement or skill and you're you're modeling it and then you go and work with some kids and you get them to do it and you go yeah 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 that but what it what you just did you know the feeling that you've got in your leg or your arm as you did that that's what it's like and it's not until they've done it that they know what you mean often do you, is that
1: that's incredibly accurate you know if you're thinking about about teaching for example badminton when they when they're learning it and they move from a short handle racket to a longer handle racket and they first make the connection and there's a specific sound and there's a specific move and, and they can see the flight it's a lot easier to, to get them to understand but you're right it's that tacit knowledge it's it's difficult to explain and they might not understand but when they first do it and you can go over and go that was exactly it that's how it should feel that's how it should look then all, yeah. of, all of a sudden they go, ah, oh, right,
0: okay, yeah, yeah, I can. It's interesting. So I had some I had some tennis lessons years ago. I wanted to um, try and get better at tennis, and I'd never, you know, I would I could play socially, but I never got any better. And I, um, I had a series of lessons with a coach, and the first thing he said to me was, "You're holding the racket wrong." And I'd spent, you know, I'd spent years and years just holding it badly, and he said, "No, no, don't hold it like that." And um, and and, you know, and I'd practiced doing the wrong thing I got, I'd got good at doing it badly and changing the grip of the racket was really really difficult but then I, I remember him saying to me is one of the things that he said and modelled and sort of made me feel is that if you want to return a serve don't look at the ball and I was like what, what do you mean don't look, look at the face of you know, the person serving and that's that's what tennis players do. And it that didn't make any sense to me him saying it. It was only after sort of me trying to repeat it until I kinda of got what he meant and was able to go, Right, yeah, now now that makes sense, but only because I felt it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I think that where where did we get to? You know, that yeah, what does what, what does a sort of understanding of, of memory sort of look like in the classroom? It's these types of things mm-hmm. that everybody struggles with new ideas and new information and very quickly gets confused and frustrated if you try and give them too much to do without enough prior knowledge or crucially without enough feeling of success mm-hmm. so if you put if you if you direct them towards success you may you create conditions where it's impossible for them to fail and you can go okay that's what it feels like you've got a hell of a lot of help you know you've got your training wheels on but that's what success feels like that's what it's like when you can do it now let's Start taking away some of that support, mm-hmm. exactly. And that's much more. That's people. Children are much more likely to go with that with on a foundation of success because they they've got something to kind of track back to. They've got a kind of model of what it feels like to succeed inside them. Mm-hmm. In some, you know, in in some sense, and and they they can cope with setbacks and, and struggle better as a result of having that feeling. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know that that. You know, Do you need to know about memory to know that? Well, maybe not, but knowing about memory helps explain and helps yeah. you understand why that might
1: be. Certainly gives that idea, Nick, kind of, all that idea that, that success leads to, to further motivation and, and more which, success.
0: More in long-term memory, which leads to greater knowledge, which leads to higher crystallised intelligence, which makes you cleverer.
1: Exactly. So can of t- to sum that up, then, you're you, you writing the book that knowledge is, and you've said it, knowledge is both what we think about and what we think with which we've spoken about, yeah. about, about at length there but when we talk about knowledge it's important to note that, that it's more than just facts and yeah. uh, and and kind of things that but there's also further further conversations to to to, to have there about about what knowledge should we teach in, in schools and, and also i want you to, to share a little bit about what is powerful knowledge
0: oh okay where do you want me to start
1: uh, if we start with um knowledge is more important
0: than just it's facts, facts yeah I mean facts are important but um, I think they're a, a, sort of a tip of the iceberg often that if you again if you think about your your long-term memory so some of the things in your long-term memory are, is factual knowledge things that you can actively retrieve and think about so you know what what's the capital of France you you know you have factual knowledge that it's Paris and you can think about that um, but there's an awful lot of stuff in your long-term memory and everyone's long-term memory that we don't know we know, that it's in there, but we haven't got sort of direct access to be able to think about it. Um, So an example of this that I talk about in the book is that if you can read English, then you know the relationships between 44 different sounds and over 170 different spelling alternatives. You probably couldn't think about that, in in individual terms like if somebody gave you a test and said i want you to you know go through all of those sounds and spelling alternatives most most fluent readers of english would not be able to do that even though they've learned them to the point of automaticity so so there's there are things that are, there are I think our, our long-term memory is full of stuff that we think with. It forms part of our cognitive architecture. It's it's how we get by in the world, but we don't necessarily have the ability to pull it out and, and ruminate on it. Does that make sense? Yes,
1: yeah, certainly, certainly does.
0: So, so the the facts that we can that we know and can talk about and think about, they're great. That's important. But there's there's a hell of a lot of other stuff that's in there as well, and um, and and. We you know we've already talked about that idea of tacit knowledge, you know, that there the are things that we know that That we just can't put into words that, that don't you know that the knowledge of how to ride a bike You know that if you even if you did sort of break that down into terms that a physicist would sort of understand and appreciate and go, Yes, that's technically correct. That's not the same as the knowledge of how to ride a bike Like you could learn you could learn the, the explanation of what it's like and still fall off the bike you need the experience of having done it, and then so that experience of what it feels like to be able to tie your shoelaces or whatever—that's also stuff that's in your long-term memory that we use all the time. Um, so that's so. So when we talk about teaching knowledge, we're not just talking about lists of facts. Or if you are talking about lists of facts, stop. <laughs> Don't just. I mean. <laughs> You know, it's it's a lot more. It's, it, there's a lot more than that. So it's also sort of thinking about how do we how do we get that tacit knowledge across? The things that we can't put on knowledge organisers, the things that we can't put into words. How how are children going to learn those things? And they're they're going to they're going to learn those things from doing them through experience or not at all. Um, so that's a really important part of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And um, you you asked there about powerful knowledge. Um, so powerful it was quite a sort of trendy idea at the moment, but it's um it comes from um, from from a sociologist called michael young who who talks about the fact that some knowledge has greater cognitive value than other knowledge, and you know arguably schools should be interested in teaching the knowledge which has the greatest cognitive value the greatest Capacity for making people cleverer, and and he contrasts um, powerful knowledge with everyday knowledge, the the knowledge that we have through direct experience. So the the sort of knowledge that we might have through direct experience is, you know how, you know where where all the different rooms in in my house are and what's in them, how you know what's on my journey to get to school. Um, is what shortcuts are the? you know, if I go that way, am I more likely to get grief off those kids? Oh no, I'll go this other route instead. Yeah, which is the best shop to go in if I want to buy fags and I'm not 16 yet? All of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm being a bit flippant there, but all of that is, is everyday knowledge and it's, it's how we live our lives and it's really, really important. But what school has the capacity to do is teach stuff that you couldn't and haven't and won't directly experience. And so, Jung talks about powerful knowledge as being things that you can use to make generalizations, which are likely to be true in any context, Uh, things which provide reliable explanations of why and how things work and things that uh, enable you to think thoughts that you couldn't otherwise think, to take part in discussions that you'd otherwise be excluded from. Any of that sort of stuff he would term as powerful knowledge and that so some of that is going to be factual, obviously, mm-hmm. but some of that is experiential as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my my subject, subject like English, um, we don't really have in English, we don't have generalizable universal truths to pass on. You know, we've got, we've just got sort of thoughts and feelings about, you know, that these are, this is how things work in certain contexts. This is what it's like here, or this is what's been done there. And it's different to the kind of knowledge that you might teach in maths or physics, but it might still have power in its ability to get children to think thoughts that they couldn't otherwise think mm-hmm. and to experience things that they'd otherwise you know, never come across independently.
1: I think that's a wonderful way to summarise summarise that that kind of what knowledge to teach and, and what powerful, powerful knowledge is. And, and it's interesting that you referred to to, to Michael Young there and what he does and I've I've only just started myself reading reading uh-huh. Michael Young's book so I'm I'm learning a little bit more about what he's saying so so thank you for for summarising that there kind of kind of moving on towards the towards the end of our interview of you David is you write a, a good chapter about practice makes permanent as opposed to practice makes perfect so you speak about purposeful practice so what is purposeful practice and also we spoke about a little bit earlier like teachers knowing the difference between experts and novices could you speak to that as well kind of as you're talking about purposeful practice
0: yeah uh okay so um so okay how are they connected so so purposeful practice is um, it's, it's it's it comes from sort of the, ob- you know, the, the naive belief is that if you practice anything, you get better at it. And so like the example I gave you earlier about my tennis grip, mm-hmm. I practice holding the, my tennis racket. i would got better at holding it badly. So that happens a lot. I think that we, you know, we, we get the literally in that case, the wrong end of the stick. And, uh, and then we, you know, the practice that we do is then counterproductive. And I think, you know, I noticed this um, with the way that children, the sort of, a lot of the writing that children do in school, um, they do lots and lots and lots of practice, but they're not necessarily getting any better at writing because often they're practicing doing things badly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So a, an example I give of this is something I call the capital letter problem. That if you, if you say to almost any child, you know, above the age of about six or seven, do you know what a capital letter is? And they... They know, they absolutely know. You, you tell, you know, you ask them, so when would you use one? And they can reel off. And then you look at their writing and go, why aren't there any capital letters in here? And they go, oh, it's just the way I write. You know, it's... Uh, and, and what's interesting about that is that I think they, they have practised... Not using capital letters, so they 've become bloody good at it they 're superb at not using capital letters in a way which you know i can obviously I can deliberately avoid using a capital letter, but it 's uncomfortable for me. you know we, you know when kids write their own name in lowercase mm-hmm. I mean I can do that, but it hurts you know what I mean? <laughs> they've done it's i'm breaking some sort of rule, but they do it fluently and effortlessly because they they 've practiced it, so whatever we practice sooner or later with enough practice we it becomes automatic it becomes something that you don't even know you're doing it you know it's like that you know um after you've been driving for a while you have that kind of like oh bloody hell how did i get here what happened to the last half hour you've gone literally in that case you've gone on autopilot um, so wherever we can It's one of the. It seems to be one of the features of our brains: is that wherever we can, we try to automatize things in order to give us more space to think about more interesting things. So, um, so you know, using capital letters is something like that. So if you want, if you want children to practice getting cap- capital correct, capital letters correct It's not a knowledge problem. You'd, the last thing they need is for you to go over and explain to them what capital letters are again. What you need is to change the conditions of mm-hmm. practice. And so, you know, one of the, the ways in which, you know, you might do that is to say, okay, so I'm going to explicitly say at the beginning of this period of practice that I'm going to pay particular attention to use of capital letters. And if I find that you've left any out, then there will be some sort of consequence for that in order to help embed the idea that, you know, you need to take responsibility for this, not just give you further um, reason to practice carrying on doing that, making the same old mistakes. And so purposeful practice is, is different from normal practice in that it's, it's targeted towards a particular goal deliberately. It's um, you, you get feedback on your pro on, on the progress that you're making but you know, most, maybe most importantly, it's it's got to be practice of something that you can't yet do easily or well. That so practicing doing something that you can that you can already do well is really hard to stop and be mindful about it. So I mean, just to you know, talk go back to that driving example. If um, if you I um I did um an advanced driving course a few years ago. Uh, mainly the urging of my mother, who st- started going out with a bloke who was um, on a part of the advanced driving school, and she, was, and she was like crazy for it for a while, and she was nagging me, like, oh, and it's really good, and there's a discount. Anyway, I did it. And what you have to do, if you do an advanced driving course, basically, you know, they teach you a load of stuff, but basically, the test is, you have to narrate your journey, and you have to talk about everything in your environment, and what you're doing, what you're thinking, mm-hmm. noticing and and doing that you know so i've been driving for years and you start driving like that and it's knackering you know it's like because well, and it's it's just it's just exhausting to sort of take in and be that conscious of what you're doing so so, and you start being aware of you know your careless errors and mistakes and things which you would normally gloss over so it's that it's practicing it's a bit like that that's purposeful practice mm-hmm. pa- practice which takes you out of your comfort zone and your your all you know the the fact that you'll be doing things automatically and it forces you to engage with the difficulty of improving
1: mm-hmm I think I love how you've kind of shared shared that little kind of insight from from your own life and and explained it in purposeful practice. I think that will make a lot of sense to to listeners, and it, it certainly makes a lot of sense to me that idea of of, of going outside our comfort zone, but being able to to narrate what we're doing and and give give a lot of feedback during that, so that people can get clever and improve. And we're gonna we're coming to the end now of of, a, of the interview, view David. Before we move on to our final three, and and my last question for the for the interviews kind of, right. a, a more practical one for, and I want to pick your brains on and you're right that not all instructional approaches are equal. Okay. So what should we focus on when, when working with children to make them cleverer in our classrooms?
0: Okay, so um, I think that we should concentrate on those things which uh, make it easier to encode information so that they increase the likelihood that they, they're going to learn the right thing and we shouldn't... Um, think that just because we've taught something that they've now got it, we should regularly get them to rehearse that information in different in, in different ways by getting them to think about it again. And the more they think about it again, the more likely they are to acquire it. And I think one of the one of my big watershed moments as uh in the classroom was was learning that there was a difference between performance and, and learning. And that uh, you know, the, the, the whole way I'd been encouraged to think about teaching up to that point was that just to make the lesson, the classroom experience as slick as possible. And so one of the things which was common to, be, to, to encourage in those uh, then was that you, in order to demonstrate how great children's learning was, you'd stop and do things like mini plenaries and you'd say, you know, what have you just learned? And they'd sort of tell you, I've just learned this. And you go brilliant. That's fantastic. And people would come in and go, "Oh yeah, tick that on the on the old clipboard." And uh, and actually, um, it's not necessarily. It's not that those things have no value whatsoever. It's just that learning is, and I give a definition of it. Learning is the is the ability to retain and transfer knowledge over the long term. And so, if you you know, it, it, every teacher has this experience where, you know, you teach something and the kids all trot out and they do, you go, I'd like you to do this activity to prove that you've learned it. And they all do it and you go, brilliant. And they troop off and they're happy and confident. And and then they come back next lesson and they've forgotten how to do it. And, you know, that's so common as a teaching experience that when you say it and teachers all kind of nod and moan and go, yeah, like, why do they do that? And it's and just normal because – you know, they've gone off and they've had a life in the interval. You know, they've left your lesson, they've gone to another lesson and been bombarded with a load of other stuff. And, you know, and then they've gone home and watched telly and played Call of Duty and all the rest of it. And they've come back and they're like, what? You know, I've got a vague memory of you saying something, but I don't know, was it this? And they're, they're not sure. And, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, one of my personal sort of bugbears as an English teacher was that i I learn to predict that kids would somewhere somehow have picked up the idea that you you put a comma where you take a breath mm-hmm. so, say to them that's not true because what if you've just been for a run and they go oh no you're right yeah yeah because like there'd be a ton of commas then wouldn't there? you know what if you've got asthma and they go right okay good so so i you know i then you know from that starting point of you then sort of teach them about it. How you use a comma to combine different clauses in a sentence, and they they do the exercise, they would learn it, and they come back next lesson. And if you ask them, they, I don't know, do you put a comma? where You take a breath? No. And but the thing is, that that that's been there longer. That mm-hmm. idea is, you know, that's they've 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 had a long time to live with that. The new stuff that you've just given them that's not been there very long and it's not lasted and it's not permanent and and it's and it's it's like the ideas in children's brains sort of do battle for prominence and so at any given point if i ask you to sort of demonstrate something the thing which has been there longest is going to win or the thing which is there most recently and and one of the you know the 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 important things to know about teaching is that it's it's iterative you go over the same ground again and again and again because you can't just teach things once and expect people to get them. You you and you change the way you do it over time. You don't go through the same same the same way of doing it each time. And, and you might get to the point where you can really quickly say, okay, so we all know that you don't put a comma week breath. Who can give me the correct definition? Brilliant, good. no, show me excellent. Great. We're gonna we'll just we'll spend you know another two minutes on that next week. And that kind of, that sort of constant looping back and retrieval to things that we've covered before, I think it's a really important instructional technique.
1: It certainly is. And we'll, we'll finish the interview there and we'll move on to what I call my final three, okay. David, that I ask yeah. every, every uh, guest that comes on comes on the show but before we do that can you please share a little bit about where listeners can find out more about you where they can interact with you and most importantly where they can buy your books because we've glossed over a lot of what you're Um, writing your books and i would highly highly encourage the listeners to to go out and buy them and read them because they've honestly been i've I've enjoyed reading them and i think i'll go back to them again and again
0: thank you darren um well, that's very kind of you to say so unfortunately you won't find them in many bookshops um you have to go on amazon or or if you don't if you're morally opposed to amazon some sort of online supplier um but uh i've got a blog which is learningspy.co.uk, and i'm on twitter as at david died and um you know if you want to get in touch with me you can do that there
1: brilliant thank you so much so when i want my, my final three david and my first question to you is, what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career?
0: Uh, I'm not sure if it would necessarily count as a text, but I think probably, the, uh, I'm going it's a blog, um, and it's it's Andrew Old's blog, um, mm-hmm. Teaching Battleground, um, because he was the first person to really challenge my assumptions about what it was to be a teacher and to educate children. Mm-hmm and you know lots of people have heard of him and sort of you know he's he proceeds by reputation and he's not always um the the, the he's quite an irascible um character but um for whatever reason he sort of patiently explained to me why i was wrong at some uh, length and, and i found his blog just you know just an important part of the journey i think maybe for the book from which i directly learned most i would i would you know, advise anyone who hasn't read it or even to those who have read it to reread it is Daniel Willingham's book Why Don't Children Like School? Mm-hmm. Or why, yeah, why why don't children like school? That's what it's called. And uh, I've read that now three or four times, and every time I reread it, I go, Ah, oh, no God, yeah, I missed that last time. It's uh, and it's beautifully written, and uh, it's a great starting point for anyone wanting to learn more.
1: Certainly, as it seems, and it's it's a book that's very well referenced throughout. Other educational literature, and it's it's definitely over the the, I think it's been out for 10 or so years. I think in that 10 years, it's massively influenced the the discussion and direction into, into cognitive science and cognitive psychology. So, my second question in my final three is if you could just give one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be?
0: My advice is that it is easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission.
1: brilliant i like that thank you so much so my my last question to you david is one that really fascinates me and and i love the range of different things that that people people suggest and and comment on is what do you think most gets in the
0: way of, of great teaching in our classrooms leadership could you elaborate on that uh, so I think obviously not necessarily you can have really good leadership and it gets out of the way of great teaching. And I think if you're if you conceive of leadership of being stripping out every demand on teachers except that they're able to teach great lessons, then you're probably leading well. And if you're doing anything other than that, you're probably getting in the way.
1: Brilliant, thank you so much, David. So that brings us to the end, and all, all that's left is, is for me to thank you so so much for for your time this morning you've given up so much of it and and i've honestly enjoyed the the conversation and i'm sure the listeners will will take a lot from it and take as much as as i have so so thank you so much for
0: great thanks for having me thank you for listening to the becoming educated podcast until next time teach with joy